May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm DC, Pubov Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. Doing our part to preserve the legacy of Shunyu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So uh, today uh, we have Chris Miller again from last week. And he's going to be reading excerpt from Searching for the Path Within. From Poetry to Zen in the 60s. Uh, and uh, this book is, you know, it's available. And under the pen name Christopher Lennox, L-E-N-N-O-X. He's going to read excerpts from it that relate to the, the, uh, his experience at Zen Center. But there's other uh, interesting stuff in it. I, I recommend the whole thing. Um, so um, he and I talk a little bit, and uh, then he reads it. It's uh, 18 pages. So when you hear the bell, if you set your mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, Hit unpause, and we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation and give Chris Miller a call. Hello. Hi there, Chris. Hey, David. How you doing? Pretty good. Uh, we've had some wild rain here last night. Uh, really pouring. Where are you again? I'm in uh, uh, California, in the Bay Area, close oh, to Berkeley. Yeah, right. El, El Cerrito. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I keep hearing about the rain. And and is there snow? There's snow up in the mountains, uh, especially down around L.A. Yeah. Uh, which is surrounded by mountains. I have snow up there. Yeah. I've had flooding. Uh, we haven't had anything except just uh, six days a week of rain and one day of sun for the last month. <laughs> Wow. Huh. And that's not, that's not typical because there's been a, a drought going on here for like seven years. Yeah. Um, yeah. This wow. is uh, the other extreme. Hmm. Well, I think uh, we're headed into just more and more extremes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, good luck. Uh What's it like? What's it like in Bali? Um, well, it's not. 
you know, uh, the, the climate hasn't uh, changed that much. It's changed somewhat. We had a lot of rain this rainy season. Uh, the, but just what I've noticed is the um, climate change is uh, hitting the poles the hardest in what, you know, the closer you are to the poles, that seems the more it's changing. And then uh, that'll even out. And uh, uh, I think uh, even though it's pretty nice here now, I think, uh, of course, we're in greater danger in time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You remember Rob Gove? I remember the name. Um, uh, I can't uh, recall his face. right. Oh, he was a really early uh, student. And uh, I just did uh, a podcast talk with him yesterday. I was so glad to be able to. He's a sculptor, works with marble and lives in Italy. I forget the name of the place. He's been wow. there since 69. Uh, wow. And it's the place where Michelangelo got his marble, and he worked there. And, and Rob is oh. just in, he's 85, and he was uh, working away on a piece when I called him. Uh, anyway, he wow. he said an interesting thing that really made me think. Uh and now people describe why they came to California or why they were looking for something and um, why they came to Zen Center. He grew up in Michigan, I think it is, and he just said it was boring and gray. Uh, uh-huh. You know, rather Northern than... Northern Michigan? Huh? No, yeah. Northern pardon? Michigan or... Or urban. It wasn't Detroit. Uh, but I think more, uh, maybe suburban. But. Suburban, yeah. He described it as gray. You know, a sort of artist's way of looking at it rather than say he didn't accept the, what people believed in and this and that. He just said he was sort of lost and it was just boring gray. So he went where he thought it was happening. And, yeah. you know, I think about uh, uh, why so many of us, there was such a, uh, were protesting the war, were, uh, you know, ready to just spend uh, as much time as possible to dedicate our lives to, uh, you know, waking up, getting enlightened and something like that. Uh, why there was such an enormous number of us then. And these days, I, I don't think the, the, the numbers are the same. Now, it might just be that they're not coming to Zen. The young people aren't coming to Zen. They might be going to other practices, like more into, uh, uh, mindfulness and, uh, self-improvement stuff. But, you know what, what? What? Then I started thinking about the gray, and I thought, well, 
there's so much available now. You know, it's the 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 money's not distributed as well. Uh, we we were free, much more free back then, to just take off. There was a much more equitable distribution of wealth. Things were just way more affordable. But yeah. al- also these days, there's there's um, so much available for people, and they get so caught up in social media and um, all sorts of media. I thought, well, that that might be it. And I thought, you know, I tend to think of things these days in terms of just, you know, simplifying uh, meditation, just being still, being quiet, uh, not trying to figure everything out and all that, and uh, not, you know, not having to look at everything that's coming my way. But um, anyway... Uh, I just thought about that. I just thought I'd mention that to you. Uh, but look, um, you, uh, we agreed you would read to us today. Uh, do you, do you, uh, have any, uh, anything you'd like to say before you read? Uh, let's see. Uh, what I'm going to read, uh, is, uh, Basically, what you have uh, on your your website, uh, with a little bit uh, more editing. Yeah, uh, I cut I cut out a few things, and I added uh, an epilogue, uh, which is just like about half a page or so, mm. uh, about uh, going back to Tassajara and. Uh, 2019 mm-hmm. to uh, take a, a workshop called The Poetry of Awakening. Mm. Uh, it was uh, Linda Hess and Kaz Tanahashi. Or, I'm not sure I have his last name right. That's right. But uh, yeah, uh, and uh, it's great. Uh, we read uh, Cold Mountain, uh, Chinese poet. And, uh, 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 what was his name? Uh, uh, anyway, an Indian, an Indian. Kabir. Poet. Yeah, Kabir, right. And, and there was another one I was trying to think of, but Kabir was, uh, the main one. And, uh, and Linda's an expert on that. Right. Uh, she, she did translations of, of that and played some tapes and uh, we uh, we wrote poetry in the workshop and we listened to uh, uh, the tapes and we read the Chinese poems and discussed uh, um, Zen and poetry. So it's it was uh, I enjoyed it. It was great and. Uh, uh, it was also, I think, uh, I had, I think I, I had been back to Tassajara before that, uh, in probably in the last uh, twenty years. Uh, but uh, uh, it was just kind of moving for me. So I, 
I just wrote a little uh, epilogue to this piece uh, about that. Do you have it on? Do you have it? Did you actually write it? Yeah. So you can you can send it too. I can send it too. Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's in my my memoir. I put it because uh, my memoir was. 2021, and my trip to Tassajara was 2019. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I I had written that, and it it includes a poem. And uh, so I thought uh, I was reading over, you know, practicing for (laughs) this occasion, reading this over, and uh, uh, I was reading out of the book, my memoir, and, and I read uh, that uh, that part about uh, returning to Tassajara, and I thought, hey, I think I, I would like to have that uh, as the ending. And I included uh, uh, some of the poetry I translated from Basho, and also Chinese poets, uh, even though I don't know the language, uh, working from uh, uh, literal uh, translations mm-hmm. and just kind of reworking them uh, into poems that I like better than some of the other translations I've read. Mm. I really got into Basho for a while there, uh, mm. Like the whole summer, I was just uh, uh, going over maybe about 200 of his poems uh, in a book I had. I think it's called Basho and His Interpreters, um, where it really gives you, not only it gives you the Japanese and the romanization of the Japanese, and then it gives you the oh. literal literal character by character uh, translation without, you know, without making complete sentences, but just, you know, right. each, each word like that. And then uh, two pages of discussion about what uh, Japanese critics and poets have said about what's going on in this poem. Mm. Now, all right, so let's hear it. Okay, so these are excerpts from Searching for the Path Within, from Poetry to Zen in the 60s, my memoir available on Amazon under my pen name, Christopher Lennox. A taste of Zen, beginner's mind. This morning, a monk drinks tea in the quiet. A chrysanthemum blooms by show. At Sakoji Temple in February 1967, I sat facing the wall on a round black stuffed cushion, a zafu, on a black quilted pad set on a thick straw mat, along with a row of my fellow meditators, also quietly sitting, practicing zazen. The silence was palpable stirred only by the soft rhythm of breathing. As time inched on, 
The pain in my legs, crossed in half lotus position, grew worse. Then it eased as they gradually numbed. With thumbs touching and hands cupped in a symbolic gesture or mudra at the navel, my connection with the universe, I followed the instructions, counting each breath up to ten, then starting over again. Except most times I barely got to four or five before a bubbling stream of distracting thoughts swept me off into worlds of endless digression. Something like this. How much longer do we have to sit here? I'll try not to look at my watch. That guy beside me has really good posture. Better pull back my shoulders, stick out my chest, straighten up. Ah, uh, doing pretty well now. That woman in gray silk pants, she bowed with such grace. Maybe talk to her later. Hmm. Better start over, remember my breathing. What will I have for lunch? Eventually I woke up and continued to follow the rhythm of breathing. The point was not to see how many breaths you could count but to calm the mind enough to just sit. As time went on, moments would come during and after meditation when perception was clear, alive in the present moment, not so caught up in the stream of thoughts rushing by. It reminded me of lying on the soft grass of a riverbank, warmed by the sun of late spring after final exams. But that first day, as I sat there facing the wall, practicing zazen, thoughts kept rising and stealing my attention until the deep bong of the large brown bowl of a bell reverberated throughout the room. As the sound slowly dissolved, each of us placed our palms together in front of our chest, fingers pointing upward, and recited in unison a short prayer of dedication for the enlightenment of all sentient beings. And then a higher-pitched bell triggered a series of bows towards our cushions and each other, and we filed out of the zendo, happy to stretch our limbs. Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master, was not there, but a tall American who I later learned was Richard Baker looked in my direction with a clear gaze and stepped toward me with barefoot poise and an air of being in charge. He smiled and asked, How was it? Good. I could do this every day for the rest of my life. Meeting Suzuki Roshi. Meditation opened my mind to a new dimension of awareness. At times, clouds of thoughts swirled through my head, but now I knew if I just sat and followed my breathing, Eventually, the inner weather would clear, and Zen had begun to infiltrate my poetry. Room at night. Through the open window, the city's rough harmony. Far-off factories, traffic, somewhere a howling dog. The silent brightness of the candle dances in its dancing shadow. I breathe the richness of incense in fresh air. A car passes through my ear and disappears.
The sound of the mind is like snow falling in the wilderness. My inspiration was Suzuki Roshi. That spring at the old Sakoji Temple on Bush Street in Japantown, he often led zazen and sometimes gave talks in the small zendo above the large hall where the Japanese congregation met. Each meditation session began and ended with bells, signaling bows. In the morning, we chanted a sutra in ancient Japanese and bowed three times to the floor, facing an altar with a small stone Buddha. I was somewhat put off by the formal ritual, but Suzuki Roshi's presence gave the practice a profound meaning that I had to respect. He was a gentle man, quiet and intense, with a mischievous sense of humor that sometimes crept in like someone peeking unexpectedly from around a corner. There was a presence about him, an inner stillness that permeated the serious atmosphere. Even though you sat facing the wall, you knew when he was there. After one talk, I asked a question. Does Buddhism teach that we should enjoy life? Hmm, yes, replied Suzuki Roshi, looking over at me. The Buddha said we should enjoy life the way a bee takes nectar from a flower, gently, without harming anything. After growing up with my father's drab work ethic, I was relieved and happy to hear this poetic image from a man who was kind and wise. My body and mind felt like green leaves basking in sunlight. Before long, I made plans to attend the July session of the first summer training period at Tassajara Hot Springs, the property Zen Center had recently bought in the Ventana Wilderness, east of Big Sur, in Los Padres National Forest. Tassajara, first training period. Sitting a while, secluded behind the falls, summer retreat begins. Basho. From the calm inland vineyards of Carmel Valley, a narrow road turned south into the foothills of the Santa Lucia Mountains, gradually rising through thinning forests. The dusty road, etched into the mountainside by Chinese laborers in the 19th century, soon turned to dry, rocky dirt, rough and increasingly steep. Scraggly weeds clung to a rock wall for life. Boulders piled up toward a mountain peak. But my old black Peugeot seemed to be doing fine. With its manual transmission, I could dig into low gear and grind up around the steep curves, winding through Chaparral toward Chew's Ridge, past the cracked gray skeleton of a tree, to a rise where the view opened out over the rugged Ventana wilderness to a distant wispy strip of the Pacific at Big Sur. I stopped to take in the exhilarating view, feeling warm and glad I had come. Then the real challenge began. The road dropped precipitously like a twisting roller coaster down into a deepening canyon. I used low gear to slow the car and save my brakes, but even so they overheated and began to slip. I had to pull over, stop, and let them cool. When I opened the door, stepped out, and looked over the narrow road's edge, 
Below was a steep ravine, plummeting down to a patch of trees hiding a creek bed. Beginning to sweat in my T-shirt, I stood there by the car as the sun beat down. The air on my skin was hot and dry. I took a swig from my canteen. Beside the road, the tufts of grass were dried light brown. The air was clear. The rocks were warm. I had not seen another car since the road changed to dirt. It was not a good place for your car to break down. Luckily, the old Peugeot with its low gear got me deep into the canyon to the end of the road at Tassajara Hot Springs, a cluster of wood and stone buildings beside a rocky creek. A steep hillside led down to trees leaning over the stream that wove through jumbles of stones. To either side of the road were even steeper slopes of dry brush, a few bent trees and tangled vegetation. Serious-looking men and women, intent in T-shirts and shorts, walked around the courtyard and along the path toward the cabins beside the creek. I pulled into the dusty parking lot, turned off the ignition, and walked over to a door marked Office. The training period was about to begin, and I joined a group of newly arrived, long-haired young men standing in the shade of a tree at the edge of the courtyard, discussing the first bit of guidance we'd been given. The Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, was not requiring us to shave our heads to fit the image of traditional Japanese monks, but he was asking men to cut their hair short, no more than the width of two fingers. Of course, there was no barber to do the job. A wiry guy with a rough-cut face said, We might as well jump right in and shave our heads. That's the simplest thing to do. The most dramatic, too, said a round-faced guy with a smile. A way to express our commitment. And by the end of training period, our hair will grow back and still be short enough to comply with Roshi's request. Better than getting a lousy haircut, said another pulling on some strands of his hair as if to take their measure. And so we went down to the baths, and before long our group of once shaggy hippies looked like shaven-headed monks by our own choice. Revisiting that time, I gathered a few memories of Suzuki Roshi at Tassajara and the San Francisco Center. Moments with Roshi. The Zen master is a gentleman in a thin robe who can move large stones with his hands. His light brush glides in a smooth circle of black ink on white rice paper. Around him, the air is clear. When he sits, he sits unmoved. At times, he lives in the canyon in Los Padres National Forest, where he shaves his head in a steaming hot spring. Students come from all over to study with him. What did they learn? Nothing special. Not always so. Things just as it is. Sometimes his laugh reveals that the way things are can be quite amusing. When he walks back from the zendo, he stops on the small wooden footbridge to look for a while at the creek in the soft evening light. At the city center, after Zazen, as we filed out through his office, 
He bows to each of us in turn, as we bow to him, and only meets your gaze when you are ready to meet his. Visiting the Temple of Gathering Fragrance Not knowing the Temple of Gathering Fragrance, hiking in miles among cloudy peaks, past ancient trees with no one on the path, deep in the mountains, somewhere a bell. The sound of a spring choking in treacherous rocks. Afternoon sunlight cools in the shade of green pines. As evening sets in by the bend of an empty pool, sitting quietly tames the heart's poisonous dragon. Wang Wei Practice at Tassajara The first challenge was Tangario, the traditional sitting outside the temple gate for new students before being admitted, admitted to Zen monastic practice. In Japan, Tangario is five days or more. At Asahara, it was reduced to three. The bad news. It was all day from early in the morning to bedtime in the evening, sitting in the zendo with brief breaks only for eating and necessary visits to the bathroom. The good news. Formal zaza... Again. The good news. Formal zazen posture was not required. You could shift your numb legs around or even stretch them out before resuming meditation posture. Tangario was a challenge I would have to accept. At least it was of limited duration, not physically impossible, and basically consisted of devoting all your energy to doing nothing. Hour after hour, I looked at the wall until the subtle patterns in the grain of the wood began to seem like faces of goblins wise old women, and long-bearded men. More difficult was following the regular schedule day after day, from the 4.30 a.m. wake-up bell to 9.30 p.m. lights out. The lights were kerosene lamps, as Sahara was far off the electrical grid. After the wake-up bell came the periodic talk of the Han, a square wooden plank hanging from a tree branch and inscribed with mysterious Chinese characters. It was hit with a wooden mallet at shortening intervals, culminating in a cascade of tucks. You were due in the zendo by the end of the second round. Then Suzuki Roshi would arrive, holding a small polished wood staff upright before him, walking quietly behind the rows of students, sitting facing the wall to take his seat on a low platform at the front of the hall looking toward the meditating students as did the stone Buddha statue on the altar behind him meditation began at the end of the third round with the beating of a huge drum standing on thick wooden legs at the entrance to the zendo 40 minute sessions of zazen alternated with kinhin slow meditative walking and morning service, chanting sutras, including the Heart Sutra, in Japanese and English, to the beat of the Mokugyo, a large hollow carving of a squat writhing fish that produced a satisfying thump when hit with a padded mallet. Kanji, Zai, Bo, Zatsu, Gyo, Jin, Han, Ya, Paramita.
declaring that form is emptiness. Emptiness is form, going beyond all concepts. Then, continuing to the zendo with no break, came silent breakfast, a ritually elaborate meal where during the chant, each student unpacked his or her orioki, a finely made set of three black lacquered bowls nestled inside each other and wrapped in a large white cloth napkin with utensils tucked in the knot at the top. When food was served one dish at a time, by then food was served one dish at a time by student waiters who strode down the aisle holding the serving pots high, bowed to each student and ladled rice, oatmeal, soup, beans, or vegetables into the appropriate bowl held out to receive them. After invoking the motivation to enlighten all sentient beings, we ate with quiet focus, knowing that we had to finish before the servers came back to give us tea and hot water to clean our bowls with a little padded stick that came with the kit. After more chanting and bowing, we finally filed out in our gray or black robes for a short break before a brief study period in the daily work meeting. As a new student, I was assigned various tasks, from clearing brush next to buildings for fire prevention to trapping flies. Walking down the trail, a sting on the back of my hand, a black fly bites. That summer, flies were everywhere, ubiquitous insects alighting on anything edible, from a speck of food on a wooden table to your own exposed flesh. It was excruciating to be sitting in the zendo, peacefully breathing, becoming aware of tiny feet trickling across your cheek in little fits and starts, crawling toward the eaves of your nose. So a group effort was needed. During afternoon break, a row of Zen students marched from one end of the zendo, flapping towels, herding the flies toward the open doors and hopefully out. It was not perfect, but when done every day, made a difference. Flies on our food were a health hazard. There are mothers and children here, someone said. So I was assigned to tend the traps to capture and poison the flies in large glass jars. Wearing gloves, I emptied the jars of fly carcasses, which I buried in the dirt, and hung the jars with their bits of meat bait back on the wires. I felt irony and ambivalence. Here I was at a Buddhist training center, following orders to exterminate tiny sentient beings, however annoying they might be. Why was I being asked to kill as part of Buddhist practice? Were they really an insidious threat to our health or just a pesky pest to our peace of mind? Being an exterminator made me uncomfortable, but for health, we had to be practical. The best I could do was learn to live with the paradox. So I said a prayer for the flies. Once I was working with Philip, built like a heavyweight boxer, who I'd heard played the role of captain of the guards in Planet of the Apes. We were carrying a wooden bed frame, and I bumped it slightly against a stone wall. The bed can feel that, he said, even though we weren't supposed to talk during work period unless really necessary. 
What do you mean? It's not a sentient being. The whole world is a sentient being. I mulled that over for days. Did he mean that boundless sentience permeates the universe? After three hours of work, it was time for midday zazen, followed by a ritual lunch and a 40-minute break before afternoon work period, punctuated by a short tea break, then more work in the hot sun until zazen service and ritual supper, often leftovers from previous meals. The day concluded with an evening break, then zazen again before retiring. When Suzuki Roshi was there, he sometimes gave a talk that showed a different way to look at things. When a student expressed difficulty following the rules, Suzuki Roshi said the rules were like graph paper. When you have difficulty with a rule, it points to where you are in your practice. In Zen mind, beginner's mind, he explained, Shoshaku Jushaku, a saying of the great Japanese master Dogen Zenji that Roshi translated as one continuous mistake. Zen practice could be seen as years of one mistake after the other, meaning years of single-minded effort. In our very imperfections, we find the basis for our way-seeking mind. The mistakes we make tell us what we need to work on. Difficulties are part of the path. As someone who had spent many years nurturing the desire to do what I wanted as much as possible, following the Tatahara schedule day after day was a challenge. On days with four or nine in the date, there was no work or midday zazen, which gave some time to do laundry by hand or go for a walk. But I wished for a free day more often. Once on a day off in the warmth of late afternoon, returning from a walk down the creek, I saw Tim, whom I'd heard had some Zen experience, submerged up to his neck in a pool among smooth stones under a shady tree. We began to talk, and I asked him, You become enlightened? Do you have to lose your ego? Yes. But how can you function without it? Actually, you don't really need it. Pondering his response, I continued down the path toward supper. If enlightenment, what Roshi called big mind, includes everything, do we really need to cling to the small mind of identifying with an illusory self-image? Later, on top of a stone wall near the meditation hall, a fearless Stellar's J, with blue body and black crest, turned its head and looked at me quizzically, then turned and bounced away. Though I did my best to be a good student and follow the schedule, it felt claustrophobic. After two and a half weeks of rigorous routine, I began to fantasize about taking a break for a few days and driving to Monterey just to regain my sanity then returning for the conclusion of the practice period. Finally, I went up to Richard Baker, the head monk in the courtyard, and told him my proposal, emphasizing that I was not quitting, but just needed a little flexibility to take a short break. He looked at me with a steady gaze. Zen is not for everyone, he said. 
After thinking it over, I decided to stay and tough it out. Actually, it got easier after that. Maybe confronting Richard lit a little steam out of the pressure cooker. By the time we reached the four-day intensive session, all-day practice, for those who were leaving at the end of the month, I was energized for a strong finish. During a study period, I browsed through the small Buddhist library and came upon a thin green hardcover book that listed many different techniques of meditation. One in particular caught my attention. It was a meditation on sound, listening to sounds in the environment and then turning the ear inward to listen to the sound of listening. I decided to try it during Zazen. Gate. Going nowhere. Riding on a horse of air. Breathing. Breathing. Turning the ear inward. Listening to the sound of listening. In between the particles of silence, a hole is opening. Through. On through, riding through. When I turn my ear inward, my mind dissolved in a rushing flow through an inner tunnel vortex and came out clear on the other side. Perception was bright, vibrant, luminous, continuous with the texture of silence. The air seemed to shimmer in the pale yellow room with its cohort of sitting Zen students. After a while, some thoughts trickled by in a faint stream underneath my otherwise placid mind. Is this enlightenment? Not quite, I thought. This flickering doubt shows that. Nevertheless, I felt transformed, mentally clear, and happy to be alive. The next day, in the morning sun, a mountain towered above as patterned shadows of leaves speckled the wide dirt path. When I came upon Richard Baker outside the office, he turned to me and asked, Are you glad you stayed? Yes, I nodded and smiled. Then I drove out of Tassajara on the rocky winding road in bright sunlight. Heading toward San Francisco, the windows wide open to let in the breeze. As I picked up speed, suddenly there was a loud flapping sound from below the rear window on the shelf above the back seat. Looking in the rearview mirror, I saw a book wide open with pages flapping and crackling in the brisk wind. I pulled to a stop, climbed into the back seat, and reached for the book. It was the Bible bound in black, that I had been given in Sunday school many years ago and had brought with me along with some other spiritual books. The Bible had blown open to a colorful picture of Daniel in the lion's den, a lone man calmly confronting great tawny cats with snarling jaws and thick manes. It felt like a message from the universe. There would be trouble ahead, and like Daniel... I would need faith. In a lightning flash, one is not enlightened. Very significant. Basho. Return to Sokoji. Sometimes a cloud gives one a rest from watching the moon. Basho. 
When I got back to San Francisco after the trip to Esalen, Gorda, and Mexico, my zazen was no longer as clear as it had been. Obsessive thoughts had returned. My practice had lapsed. The glimpse of peace had been temporary. Slowly, I pulled myself up the long stairway toward Suzuki Roshi's office with heavy steps, pausing to lean on the railing, feeling remorse. I was disappointed with myself and wanted to confess to him, to be encouraged and forgiven. Just as I reached the hall at the top of the stairs, he came striding out of his office in his informal robe, staring stone-faced straight ahead. Briskly, he walked right by me, without a glance, as if propelled on a mission. Without looking back, he strode down the hall and disappeared around a corner. I was left to stew in my own emotions. Was he just preoccupied by something else? Was he angry at me for letting my practice lapse, or for not taking the loss of my glimpse in stride, and instead getting upset about it? I had a feeling he could sense what was in my heart and mind. If this was a teaching, what did it mean? In any case, I walked back down the stairs and resolved to continue my practice. The fundraising campaign to purchase Tassahara had attracted more new students to the modest city Zendo in a room behind the balcony of the large Sakoji Auditorium that was used by the Japanese Buddhist congregation. The Zendo doors were closed at the start of Zazen at 5.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. so that latecomers would not disturb the silent meditation once it had begun. If you were late, you took a seat on one of the black cushions set on a line of thick straw tatami mats next to the wall on the balcony. You sat facing the wall in the rafters with the cavernous hall behind you. One evening when I was late, which I admit was rather often, I was sitting on one of these mats beneath the eaves about halfway through the 40-minute zazen period, quietly trying to follow my breath amid a flow of distracting thoughts. Suddenly, the ear-splitting sound of an organ hit me right at point-blank range. My shocked senses jumped into full alert at the sonic blast. Then it dawned on me that this must be organ practice, and the pipes were right up here in the balcony. Very zen, I thought, the shock of the now. I sat full of majestic organ music for several minutes until it abruptly stopped. When Suzuki Roshi got angry, it came like the blast of that organ and dissolved without a trace. Once at morning zazen, he was making his usual rounds, walking ceremoniously behind the row of students sitting facing the wall, holding his polished wooden stick upright before him. As he passed, even though we could barely hear him and only see him with peripheral vision quietly coming, each student would raise both hands and place them together, palm to palm, pointing up at heart level to acknowledge his presence and greet him with a bow, a gasho. That morning, about 15 feet before he reached me, Roshi suddenly shouted, Kasho! Then again, even louder, Kasho! I peeked over to see what was happening. 
the student Roshi had shouted at, was looking back at him with a puzzled expression. The young man must have been new, unfamiliar with the ritual, and didn't know what Gasho meant. Roshi's expression suddenly changed from fierceness to kindness. He stepped toward the student, bent down beside his ear, and whispered, I'm sorry. I was touched by his sudden complete change from anger to compassionate, caring presence. A spiritual struggle. I threw myself into Zen Center's December session, physically, mentally, and emotionally. I wanted to make up for my lack of follow-through after my experience at Tassajara by conjuring up another spiritual breakthrough to release me from suffering. Following the demanding schedule with passionate intensity, I gathered up all my frustration and practiced out of desperation, completely ignoring my teacher's instruction to practice with no gaining idea. This all-out assault on, quote, enlightenment, unquote, came to a head during the final day's meditation. Practicing with utmost intensity, I sat stock still until my body began to shiver. Soon I was convulsed with a wave of emotion, my arms and legs shaking, my face breaking into a grimace. I looked toward Suzuki Roshi at the front of the room. He sat there calmly and patiently, seemingly unconcerned. Weathering the emotional storm, I made it through the concluding ritual and dedication. After we filed out of the Zendo, a small group of students gathered around me. Taylor, who I knew had a profound experience at the July session that summer at Tassahara, asked, Was it Kensho? In truth, I didn't know what it was. But I wanted so much for it to be a glimpse of enlightenment that I looked down and nodded, yes. Roshi does it every time, said Taylor as if welcoming me to the club. Then I realized that despite its emotional power, my meltdown was brought on by forceful striving for enlightenment and lacked the insight of expanded awareness of my glimpse at Tassajara. I felt ashamed that my answer was not really true. Grasping at my previous experience had not brought it back, no matter how intensely I threw myself into it. Now at least I could see the way forward, to practice with patience and no gaining idea. Intensive Training View from the Great Peak The ancient sacred mountain, what is it like? To north and south the greenery never ends. Creating intense and mysterious beauty, Shadow and sunlight split at dusk and dawn. Breathing hard, emerging from a layer of clouds, eyes opened wide at returning birds. The only way is to climb to the very top. Then all the other mountains will look small. Do food. No longer driving my old Peugeot, in the summer of 1970, I returned to Zen Mountain Center at Tassajara Hot Springs for further intensive training. If I had flown in a helicopter and looked east from above Big Sur, I might have seen the rough-hewn ridges of the Santa Lucia Range 
rising 6,000 feet to Junipero Serra Peak above a rocky, corrugated landscape of mountains and canyons. But I was riding in the back of a four-wheel drive Dodge Power Wagon, rumbling along the bumpy, winding dirt road over Chu's Ridge towards Tassajara Canyon, hidden deep in the midst of wilderness peaks, its location reflecting the profound practice of Zen. Teachings on the Sandokai The last two lines of the Sandokai, an ancient and melodiously rhythmic poem by the master Sakito that we chanted each morning, were similar to those carved on the Han, the wooden board hanging outside the Zendo, hit with a mallet and a gathering rhythm to summon us all to sit zazen. Both urged us, in view of impermanence, not to spend our time in vain. When I returned to Tassajara, Suzuki Roshi was completing a series of teachings on this seemingly paradoxical text, which he referred to in English as oneness of one and many, understood as one whole being that includes everything. During one talk, Roshi stood pointing to a line on the portable blackboard in the gray stone zendo, leaning forward in his robe with his face alight. Hearing the words, understand the meaning. If we focus on a finger pointing at the moon, we won't see the moon itself. That made sense. The harder part came next, when he said that at Tassajara we should follow Tassajara's rules, not make up our own. The rules are not the point, but they point to the real teaching. I remembered Roshi had said that rules were like graph paper. The lines show you where you are and what you need to work on. I resolved to try. I would do my best to follow the Tassajara schedule and learn from my encounters with the rules. Suzuki Roshi's final talk on the Sandokai was a real lesson for me about grasping after enlightenment, which had been a problem, especially after my first training period. Practice is not a matter of far or near. When you strive to attain enlightenment, you think you are far away from it or getting near to it. But enlightenment is right where you are. When you practice with no gaining idea, that is enlightenment. How to give up attachment to a goal and yet keep going. The key seemed to be keep going in the right direction. The reckoning. To be ordained or not, that was the question. In August, Suzuki Roshi would offer a simple ceremony in which his lay students could commit themselves to the Buddhist path. Commitment had been a big issue for me, both in career and relationships. I had a tendency to follow my enthusiasms and infatuations until they wore thin, then discard them like old clothes. My fear was of being trapped in an unsatisfactory situation. I was devoted to meditation as my spiritual practice, with Suzuki Roshi as my teacher. But did I want to become officially a Buddhist? I could relate to the Buddha's story and teachings and found them inspiring. So what was the problem? For one thing, I wasn't sure I believed in rebirth, a seemingly indelible part of the Indian cultural context. 
And growing up as a Unitarian, I was skeptical of complex formal rituals. But Zen did not seem to emphasize belief in rebirth, and its rituals, while formal and somewhat austere, were quite elegant. The main point in Zen was the practice, both sitting in Zazen and maintaining the presence of awareness in daily life. So what was holding me back? I requested an interview to see if that could help resolve my doubts. Suzuki Roshi's cabin was neat and simple, with a small, low table of dark, polished wood on a floor covered with firmly woven tatami mats. A striking example of Zen calligraphy hung on the wall. I sat on a cushion across from him as he carefully cut up a green apple with a small paring knife. He offered me a section, then plopped another one into his mouth. After we each had a piece of the sweet, crunchy fruit, he asked, How are you doing? I have a problem. I'd like to take lay ordination, but I'm not sure I'm really a Buddhist. I explained my various reservations. Roshi paused to finish chewing another slice of the apple. Then he said, Why not go ahead and get ordained? If you ever have any regrets, you can blame me. And he smiled like a fellow conspirator. Okay, I said with relief. The next day I joined a group of students, each learning to sew a rakshu, a dark blue scale model of the Buddha's robe, about a foot square, sewn together with invisible stitches, which is worn like a bib around the neck of an ordained layperson in the zendo and on ceremonial occasions. Roshi's wife, Hokusan, in Japanese, was the patient instructor. Contrary to my expectations, I actually liked learning to carefully sew with stitches so precisely hidden behind the turns of the cloth they could not be seen. Failing to Master the Art of Monastic Living Despite my appreciation for the elegance of formal Zen rituals, I still felt rebellious when I thought they were too rigid or restrictive. For example, we had to finish eating before the hot water for cleaning was poured in our bowls, and the time allowed was never enough, meaning we had to chew vigorously and not take too much food. The point may have been to discourage daydreaming, but only allowing about five or ten minutes for actually eating seemed overly strict. Once my medium-sized bowl was still full of beans when the hot water servers came striding down the aisle. Beans need to be chewed, and there was no way to finish in time. Rather than panic, I carefully picked up the red and black lacquered bowl brimful of beans and placed it on the straw mat beside and behind me, taking it out of action. After completing the ritual without it, I reached down and picked up the full bowl and held it perched on the fingers of both hands like an offering, raising it slightly when I dipped my head to bow, then held it up with defiant concentration as we walked out the old stone zendo into single file, as we walked out of the old stone zendo in single file. Outside, I sat down on a wooden bench and ate my beans, glad to find a way out of the bind. Formality got even stricter when Tatsugami Roshi, the former master of ritual at a Heiji monastery in Japan, 
came to lead our training periods with a suspected mission of shaping things up. Tatsugami Roshi was built like a heavyweight wrestler. He looked tough as sitting bull with a face like crushed rock. When his solid presence entered the zendo, it was clear he could not be pushed around. His specialty was ritual discipline. He spoke in brief grunts and staccato Japanese sentences. All told, Tatsugami Roshi was the perfect target for my authority figure projections. All told, Tatsugami Roshi was the perfect target for my authority figure projections. And maybe because of that, I kind of liked him. When I was assigned to make the ritual offering, he was sitting on the platform in front of the altar like a block of stone. I stood at the back of the hall with a dark red cup of special green tea on a black lacquer tray, held head high with the fingers of both hands, awaiting the moment in the chant when I would walk forward ceremoniously and place it carefully upon the altar. There were two possible aisles to walk down, one on either side of a low partition where students could sit on both sides. As a rule, one walked down the aisle on my right, but on this day, there were fewer students than usual, and they all sat on the aisle to my left. Should I adapt the situation and walk down the aisle where everyone was sitting or follow the right side convention, even though no one was there? I chose to adapt and began my stately walk on the left past the group of students. Suddenly, a burst of unintelligible Japanese shot like a bark from the motionless Tatsugami Roshi, and I knew I'd picked wrong. I stopped, embarrassed, but maintaining the stately pose, turned around and returned to the back of the hall, then began again on the right, striding slowly past the empty seats to place the ritual offering on the right side of the altar where it belonged. No one criticized me about this mistake, maybe because the correction was immediate and nothing more needed to be said. But to me, it stood for two different approaches to life, creative adaptation to the present situation versus strict adherence to tradition. My heart was with creative adaptation, and Tatsugami Roshi, in his shaved head and robes, was the imposing enforcer of tradition. In the Shosan ceremony, at the end of a practice period, students confront the abbot one by one and ask Dharma questions. Possessed by a reckless impulse inspired by a few Zen stories, when my turn came, I walked up to Tatsugami Roshi and expressed my pent-up frustration by shouting as loud as I could in his face, Ah! His head moved back slightly, absorbing the sonic impact. Then, with a half-smile, he said calmly, Take it easy. Practice in the dark. Secretly at night, a worm under the moonlight bores into a chestnut. It was a custom at Kasahara that every night one student slept in the zendo as an informal guardian. After the winter practice period and before the summer guest season, that spring several leaders of Tassajara left for a few weeks and went to the San Francisco Center. 
I was appointed de facto Eno in charge of the Zendo, and that included making sure we had a student to sleep there each night. There was no problem until one time a fellow student woke me up around midnight with an air of urgency. He said his roommate assigned to the night watch had heard strange sounds near the shrine and saw a ghost, an old man with a white beard. His roommate had left the Zendo and wouldn't return, so he was willing to step in and do it if I'd be there too. Okay, I said, feeling responsible to deal with the situation, and also curious whether the ghost would appear to the two of us. We took our sleeping bags and both returned for the night on tatami mats near the back of the zendo. We lay there alert, unable to sleep. Did you hear that sound? whispered my companion. Maybe a creaking branch, I said. Could be the wind. We watched and waited and finally dozed off. The ghost never appeared. But something did happen later in June when I was on duty guarding the hot spring baths. People from off-site sometimes tried to sneak into the baths at night. I decided to sleep on the narrow wooden bridge across the creek that led to the entrance, a way to make sure that no one got through. As I slept very soundly on the well-fitted planks of the ark, suddenly something came crushing down on me, and I woke up shouting, Yeah! as I leaped up grabbing a stranger who had just stepped on my chest. We shared a moment of fear that dissolved when we saw what had happened. The young man was apologetic. I'm sorry, I didn't see you. I escorted him and his friends back to the office, and they left before dawn. As the sound of the Han in a gradually quickening rhythm summoned all beings to morning zazen. Late summer at the Deer Park. Empty mountains, no one to be seen. But here, the echo of someone's voice. Returning sunlight enters this deep forest and shines again rising upon the green moss Wang Wei we knew Suzuki Roshi had bouts of poor health for a while the past two winters he had severe flu and in March his gallbladder was removed when he was well he came back to Tassajara to teach and work with renewed energy he loved it there immersed in nature among his students where intensive Zen practice found a home one day in late summer, he gave a brief, unscheduled talk in the zendo. Sitting in front, near the altar, he suddenly got up from his cushion, took a few steps across the platform, and stood beside the shrine. He said he would like to live ten more years to complete his work. Then he paused and said in a strong, heartfelt voice, I want disciples who will follow me through life and death. I was moved and a bit shocked at the impact of what he was saying. I wanted him to live at least ten more years, but something about the way he spoke implied that he might leave sooner. In my cabin, I had a small wooden incense box with a Chinese character stamped on the cover. 
I thought it meant long life, but was not completely sure. Later that afternoon, I went to Suzuki Roshi's cabin, showed him the wooden cover with the Chinese character, and asked what it meant. He looked at it and said, Long life. It's for you, I managed to say, and gave it to him. He smiled ruefully and nodded. Thank you very much. Farewell. As autumn years, farewell. As autumn years, our hearts draw together in a small tea room. Basho. It was a day off, and I was doing my laundry by hand in a big galvanized basin. For the first time, I washed my raksu and was dismayed to find Suzuki Roshi's brushwork and seal on the back were beginning to fade, as I'd feared. Just then, Roshi himself walked past on the dirt road. What shall I do if your writing on my raksu disappears? I asked him in consternation. You just try to make it disappear, he said with a grin as he walked by. That fall, we learned Suzuki Roshi had cancer, and by late November, his condition was dire. Many of his students assembled in San Francisco for the transmission ceremony to install Richard Baker as the new abbot of Zen Center. The hall was crowded with students and teachers in formal black robes. All waited in silence until in the hush, the sound of a staff hitting the floor, the rings on its handle jingling, came from the hall and Suzuki Roshi entered. He was barely able to walk, his skin dark brown, his body emaciated, bravely striking his staff to the floor with each step as his Dharma air followed behind. Sadness pervaded the crowd in black robes written on every face. Later I learned that when Suzuki Roshi was in bed shortly before he died, Richard asked him where they would meet. Roshi raised his arm and extending his finger, moved his hand in a wide circle embracing the universe, then placed his palms together, fingers upward, and bowed. Suzuki Roshi was a spiritual father to me, it felt too soon to lose him, yet this was his teaching. We must find our own way to go on. Reflections at Dusk Black branches break up the moon. Down in the stream, the pieces are dancing together. Epilogue Listening Fifty-two years after I first went to Tassajar, I came back to rediscover what I found there and how it transformed my life. In a workshop on the poetry of awakening, we read poets like Cold Mountain and Kabir, who expressed the path beyond words and did it with writing and singing to point the way. Each evening in the wilderness canyon, walking back through the trees to my cabin beside the creek, I heard the sound of innumerable crickets making together the infinite music of nature, reminding me that my deeper self is not just an image to identify with, but a continuous flow of vivid awareness beyond any attempt to label or grasp. Music of the Night Crickets every evening in this forest canyon, 
Invisible jazz musicians listen to each other, weaving dark reverberations much bigger than we know. I'm lost in a thicket of music, a jungle of complex rhythms, repeating yet not repeating, filling space with oscillations that can't be grasped. Sisters and brothers listen to the crickets, jam their mysterious song, as down below the rushing creek flows on through heavy stones. The afternoon before leaving, I climbed up the hillside to Suzuki Roshi's rugged memorial stone and bowed three times to the ultimate ground. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's really good. I really liked it. Hmm. Well, th- thank you. Yeah. A lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> the first part has a lot of material that uh, uh, Zen students probably don't need. All, you know, all the details of uh, the practice and everything, but I was I was writing it so someone who had never experienced Zen could uh, sort of... Uh, know, picture and feel what it was like. No, it was good. Yeah, no, it's all good. Uh, very good, and it's been most enjoyable. Um, and uh, I think my wife wants us to do some yoga now. Okay, and look, David, I really appreciate uh, you giving me this opportunity to reach people. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not easy. Uh, no. It's not. Thank Hmm. you very much. Well, it's a pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. Very good. It's been fun. All right. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. That's neat. I appreciate your coming on twice and letting us know about that. Oh, let me say something. When we talk about the weather back then, uh, this was March 24th when uh, we had that talk. So it's over two months ago uh, since when this is going up. But, you know, so that, that talk was done on March 24th, 2023. Okay. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Poopa of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggett Bandita, guest Doggett Boombo, and dear lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Thank you.